If we were to consider the people around us, in your neighborhood, in this neighborhood, or even those in this building, we can divide people in various ways. Organize. You can see differences and distinctions in various people. There are those who are young and there are those who are not so young. There are those who are male and those who are female. Two distinct fixed genders. We can see distinctions in various ways. There are various countries represented, ethnicities here, even this congregation. Again, if we all do your Ancestry.com background, I suspect we'd see we come from various parts of the world, ethnically. But ultimately, humanity is divided into two groups, the saved and the lost. And again, I make no apologies for emphasizing that simple fact tonight. You're here, and you're either saved or you're lost. Now, the way to salvation, well, that varies. How God saves individuals will vary from one to the other. The stories will be different. And Wednesday night, we may hear testimonies. And again, you understand that God saves us in different ways. And it's also true that those who are lost will live out that lostness in various ways. The lost, two lost souls, don't look identical. They will live in different ways out their lost state. But peering through the diversity, we come back to the main thing. All those who are saved rest and rely on Christ alone. It comes down to that again. That every single person, no matter their story, they've come to a point where they've rested on Christ alone. And all those who are lost, they can be described as remaining in their sinful condition. So whilst there are these, if you like, foundational aspects of truth, examining the differences can help us to understand and to reach our neighbors. We're going to see a contrast here tonight between the Jew and the Gentile. But a lost Jew and a lost Gentile, they ultimately come down to the same thing. They still remain in their sin. And a saved Jew or a saved Gentile, they also come down to the same thing. They've come to rest in Christ alone. And so whilst there are differences, there are very strong common truths. You see, Paul here has been explaining the Jewish rejection of the gospel of the Messiah. And the concern is, back in the early part of chapter 9 and the verse number 6, has the word of God taken none effect? That's the question that's before him here, verse number 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Has God failed to keep his promise? And in these early verses, he's emphasized that God, from the beginning, in fact, from Abraham on, he has preserved a spiritual seed among and in the ethnic identity of Israel, the people of God. And that spiritual seed they are saved according to God's sovereign will. It is the purpose of God according to election that stands, verse number 11. So those who are saved in Israel and those who are lost in Israel, the difference is in God's sovereign will. It's not in their working. It's not conditional on their good efforts or their righteous efforts in religion. It is in the sovereign mercy of God. And so within Israel... There were those who were out of Christ, and those who were in Christ. 
And that distinction is, according to Paul in these verses, according to the sovereignty of God, here, according to verse 15, it says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on him on whom I will have compassion. And so God is sovereign in the display of his mercy. But that sovereign will to show mercy is then expressed in time, as we've just read in verse number 24, in God calling souls to himself. I'm not going to have time to go back over the doctrine of the effectual call, but that's what's in view here in verse 24. Even us whom he hath called. You see, how does, how does God save a sinner? Well, he, he has set his love upon that sinner from all eternity in Christ Jesus. And yet in time, he works in their hearts and he draws the sinner to himself. The sovereign, gracious work of God in saving a soul. It is this work of sovereign calling. And so Paul says, even us whom he hath called. But this calling, this effectual work of God in salvation, has been enjoyed, as it says in our text, not only by the spiritual seed of the Jew, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And that leads Paul to really a discursive where he discusses the contrast between the Gentiles and the Jews in their spiritual state. And it's that distinction that's a help to us tonight. Again, I remind you, we're, we're looking at only two groups of people in the world, the saved and the lost. But there are lost Jews and lost Gentiles. And there are saved Jews and saved Gentiles. And comparing the differences can help us understand our neighbors and even understand our own spiritual state tonight. So in your outline, you'll see I just very I have two points tonight. I want to first of all consider the contrasting history. There's a contrast here shown by Paul between the Jew and the Gentile, and we should examine that contrast, and we'll do so in two ways. But then we'll also see the common necessity, because when you come to the end of this passage, we see that Paul blurs all distinctions and draws it to a point. The common necessity is that sinners believe and trust in Christ Jesus. So first of all, please note the contrasting history. We can read the various ways in which the Jews and the Gentiles are compared here. Again, perhaps I shouldn't take it for granted, but when I say uh, a Jew, what do I mean by a Jew? Well, I'm referring to those who are in the physical line of Abraham. Seth, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what we're discussing here, those who are that ethnic line, that genealogical, genetic line, the children of Abraham physically. Not spiritually, but physically. Gentiles then, in the language of the New Testament, and that's everybody else. You're either a Jew or you're not a Jew, and if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile in the language of the Apostle Paul. But as we contrast these two separate groups, we see a contrast, first of all, in terms of the covenant. The covenant. The Jew. God entered into covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's hinted at in verse number 27. In the quotation of Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel 
Be as the sand of the sea. It's that terminology, the sand of the sea, that draws our minds towards the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And again, back in Genesis chapter 22, after the offering of Isaac and God providing the the ram, the substitute, God brings again the renewed covenant to Abraham saying, In blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. It's a promise that out of Abraham would come a great nation, and his seed would possess the gate of his enemies. That's Genesis 22 verse 17. That language was repeated to Jacob. Genesis 32, it says this, And thou says, I will surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. It's repeated later on in the reign of Solomon. So you go through the time of the Exodus, and they come into the promised land, and then the Davidic kingdom, and then Solomon's reign, it says this, Judah and Israel were many as the sand which is by the sea in multitude. God had kept his promise to Abraham. Even in Solomon's day, it was true of the Jew that they were as the sand of the sea. Verse 27 of our text here in Romans chapter 9. And so I believe that Paul is aware of God's choice of Israel. He's aware of his sovereign covenant to bless the nation, the seed of Abraham. That's his purpose. Paul's already mentioned the blessings they enjoyed. Remember chapter 9, back in verse number 4, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants. God had promised to bless them. God's eye was upon this actual nation, this physical nation. Yes, the fulfillment of that promise is in Christ Jesus. He is the ultimate seed of Abraham, and the nations of this world are blessed in him. But we should not ignore the fact that God chose a particular nation, put his love upon that nation, and preserved them, and allowed them to flourish and grow until they were as a sand of the sea. They are in covenant relationship with God. But that was not true of Gentiles in the old covenant times. God did not enter into covenant with Gentile nations. And so you see, as he quotes Hosea chapter 1 and 2, back in verse number 25, as he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people. That's the contrast here. To the Jews, he entered covenant. But the Gentiles, that was not so. Now Paul is referring this text in Hosea to the Gentiles. That's the whole point. Verse 24, but also the Gentiles, as he hath said, or as he saith also in Hosea or Hosea. Now, I mentioned last time, and here again, this is something that, again, if you're interested in, in Bible understanding, you should be. There is an interesting feature here. If you turn back to Hosea, turn back, please, to Hosea now. See Ezekiel, Daniel, and after Daniel comes Hosea. One of the larger, of course, the larger minor prophets, Hosea chapter 1. You'll see the quotation. 
It's mentioned there, verse number 6, And she conceived again and bare a daughter, and God said unto him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. This passage in Hosea is not referring to Gentiles here. In its initial setting in the word of Hosea, it's referring to the people of Israel who due to their sin had forsaken the covenant, broken the covenant, and God says, I will utterly take them away. But, verse 7, I will have mercy upon the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God. Verse 9, Then said God, Call his name, Lo, Ami, for ye are not my people and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it is said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living gods. And so in Hosea, the promise is that the people of God who have broken covenant will be restored to fellowship with God, and they will be the people of God. And so that's caused some concerns. How is Paul using Hosea here to refer to Gentiles in Romans chapter 9? I don't want you to be confused by that. I don't want you to be misguided. Again, the similar language is used over in chapter 2 and verse 23. Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my gods. Now, likely, there are a couple of possibilities. One is that Paul saw parallels here. And he's drawing on the parallels that the people of God were outside God's mercy, and now they're going to be in God's mercy, and so it was for Gentiles. But I think it's more than that. He's seeing in God's mercy to Gentiles, or God's mercy, sorry, to Israel and to Judah, the working out of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31. He makes a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and he will be their God and they will be his people. And it's into that covenant that the Gentiles are engrafted. And so he's drawing out this theme understanding as he does that the covenant is one organic unity, that the old covenant made, again, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that covenant is, it's not the Gentiles, but a new covenant is made into which Gentiles are engrafted. Now, John Murray puts it this way, so it is with the Gentiles, once forsaken of God, but later embraced in covenant love and favor. The same procedure is exemplified in both cases. And Paul finds in the restoration of Israel to love and favor the type and terms of the Gentiles become partakers of the same grace. The sovereign grace of God to Israel and Judah, that same grace of God will be shown to Gentiles. And so you turn across to Ephesians chapter 2 and you'll understand these words. Remember we're seeing here, there's a contrast here. The Jewish nation, they are in covenant relationship with God. He's oath-bound promised them his blessing and his goodness. And it's said of the Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2 and the verse number 12, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the calm of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It's describing the state of the Gentiles in contrast to the Jew. But of course, in the gospel, 
Verse number 17, Christ came in the apostolic ministry and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh, both to Jew and to Gentile. Therefore, verse 19, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. It's a contrast here. I'll come back to that. But the second contrast is in terms of their conduct. Again, back to Romans chapter 9. There's a contrast. We've got to understand these are not easy verses to understand, but you've, you've worked through them. You see the contrast. The Jews, they're the sand of the sea. Gentiles, they're not God's people. There's a contrast. But the contrast is then worked out in terms of their conduct. Look what it says, verse 30. That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness. Verse 31. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness. You see how we have contrast here. I'm not manufacturing this to help a sermon. We're seeing we're deliberately being led by the apostle to see a distinction between the conduct of the Gentile and the conduct of the Jew. Now, we see that their aim is the aim of righteousness. The Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness. Now, here I've got, to, I've got to take a shortcut and assume that you remember all that Paul has said thus far regarding the righteousness of God in Romans. Righteousness. Acceptance with God. A holy and a just God has a standard of righteousness. And the Gentiles, it could be said, they are not following after God's righteousness. They are not pursuing acceptance with God. They're not desiring to be accepted by the Lord. But to the Jew, again, verse number 31, to them it was revealed the law of righteousness. God spoke to Moses on Sinai and revealed his law in clear, in clear form to their minds. And they understand the law. They knew that God had a standard. They knew that standard required perfection. They knew God to be a righteous God. They knew God expected them, be ye perfect, be ye holy as I am holy. And to that end, they follow the law of righteousness. Now, I understand the problem here. You read the Old Testament and you see the people of God fail to follow that standard. And they fail miserably. And they can't keep the standard of God's righteousness. But it does not mean that they didn't understand the need to be righteous before God. The law was given. That law was to lead them to see the need of a Savior and to trust in that coming Savior. But they still, they understood the need to be accepted by God. But the Gentiles, however... Verse number 30, they follow not after righteousness. Lloyd-Jones puts it very simply. He says this, How can a man be right and just with God? That had never occurred to them. And they were not interested in it. Now, we find it hard to understand that. But we're living in days of technology and mass media, and we can share messages left, right, and center but at this point, the Gentile nations, they were not concerned with what it meant to be right with God. Are you tonight? Do you have that concern? Again, in the very simplest terms, have you ever asked the question, how can I be right with God? 
Because that's the fundamental question for you tonight. How can a sinner be right with God? And it must be your concern. It must be the burden of your heart. How can I be right with God? The Gentile nations in the Old Testament, they did not follow after righteousness. It wasn't their concern. Now we can draw some, if you like, some other lines of thought as to answer the question, why? Why did they not follow after righteousness? Well, you might say, well, partly because of ignorance. We saw in Acts 17 today, there were the times of ignorance. You turn to Ephesians chapter 4, and again, you'll see Paul acknowledges this. The Gentiles were marked by ignorance. Now, I'm turning you to these verses because I want you to understand your neighbors. I want you to understand that those, again, who have no thought of God, and the fear of God is not before their eyes, this describes them. They are not considering how to be right with God. They do not care about being right with God. It's not in their thoughts. It's not in their imagination. Why? Well, because of their ignorance. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. We're getting insight. We're we're, we're seeing, if you like, an insight into the Gentile mind. A mind marked by vanity. Because they have the understanding darkened. They are alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. Again, it's not describing God's revelation as being unclear. God's revelation in creation and in the Word of God is perfectly clear. But ignorance comes because of the blindness of their heart. Ignorance. It's also true that Gentiles did not pursue righteousness because of their idolatry. Again, back to Romans chapter 1. We know what happens. They have a knowledge of God through creation. Uh, There is a God of eternal power and Godhead. But what do they do? They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Verse number 23. They change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Verse 25, they changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The Gentiles, they did not pursue righteousness of God because they were content in their false religions. They were content in worshipping the creature and not the creator. You know, we are made by God, in God's image, with a a thirst to know God. And the unregenerate around us, they satisfy their thirst for God by pursuing this world or pursuing some false religion. There's some God in their life. It is impossible to live in this world without having a God in your life. The question is, who's God? Is it a God of your imagination Or is it the God of the Bible? But you cannot live this life without some God in your heart. It might be yourself. It might be your money. It might be fame and fortune and popularity. It may be any of these things. But you have a God in your heart. The question is, do you worship the true God? These Gentiles, they're not seeking righteousness of the God because of their their ignorance, because of their idolatry, but also because of their immorality. Again, these things are not disconnected. They are all very closely connected. Those who worship a false god will delight in immorality. 
But turn across to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, I'd select a text that explicitly highlights the state of the Gentiles. Whether it's Romans 1 or Ephesians 4 or here now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And again, Paul says this, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, so description of marriage. Not in the loss of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Ignorance, idolatry, connect with immorality. Does it surprise you that a nation that turns its back on God pursues all manner of immorality? It shouldn't. You see the turning from God, 1950s and 1960s. It is no coincidence that as people turn their back against God, they begin more and more to pursue sexual liberality as they see it and the sexual liberation of the sexual revolution. They've turned their back against God. You see, you can understand your neighbors, can't you? When you understand the Gentiles here and you see them described, they are those that follow not after righteousness. They have got spiritual ignorance. They're spiritually idolaters. And they're marked by profound immorality. These are the people we live among. I don't sit with any pride or arrogance. This is how God describes them. Pagan, immoral, idolaters. The contrast is seen in terms of the covenant and also in their conduct. And so this contrast, it shows us something. There is such a thing as spiritual privilege. Privilege is an unpopular word these days. If you talk about privilege, you begin to think of inequality. And then we have to address that inequality. The Bible is very, very clear. There is such a thing as those who are spiritually privileged. Not all enjoy the same privileges. These privileges, they come in the sovereign gift of God. The Jewish nation at the time of Christ were greatly privileged in contrast to the Gentiles. They knew the law. They understood the need for righteousness. And they understood their need ultimately to be saved. But their privilege was wasted. It was possible for the Jew in the Old Testament and in the Jew, for the Jew in the times of Christ Jesus to be as lost as a Babylonian or as an Assyrian. And that's why I started tonight as I did. Ultimately, whether you're a Jew who knows the Bible, raised in the covenant, the word of God being brought to you day by day in your home, you have that privilege, you're just as lost as that pagan, idolater, immoral person in your neighborhood. And I have no qualms about drawing the application to you in this church tonight. You have the same privileges as the Jews had in the times of Christ. In fact, your privileges are greater. You have the New Testament. You have the evidence of Christ's resurrection. God in his sovereign will, has privileged you greatly. You've heard the gospel. You've heard about your sin 
and you've come to realize, I'm a sinner before God, but yet God has given a Savior in Christ Jesus. And I can be saved by trusting in Him. He who has died for sinners and raised again the third day, having victory over the devil and the grave. All of these things we know, and yet you can spurn your privilege. All of this privilege, and yet it can be wasted, bearing no fruit in your life. What a tragedy. It is that tragedy that's breaking the heart of the Apostle Paul here. He's burdened for his brethren. He he sees how God has blessed them with such light. And yet he sees them rejecting their Messiah and his heart breaks. Dear people, we must feel the same for those who are raised in this place. And yet spurn their privileges. But there's something else. A lack of spiritual heritage a lack of spiritual privilege is no obstacle to the saving grace of God. Some of you know this. You were raised in homes where the Word of God was never opened. You may have had a dusty old Bible in some corner of a shelf, but it was never opened in your hearing. You didn't hear the gospel until your 20s or 30s. You knew none of these spiritual privileges that young people in this church know. And yet your lack of spiritual privilege was no obstacle to the grace of God. In fact, God exalted His grace in saving your soul. If that doesn't melt your heart, you probably need to go back and search your heart tonight. God saves those who are privileged, but He also saves those who are raised as pagan, immoral idolaters. He calls Jews and Gentiles to Himself. That's the contrasting history. But briefly tonight, note please, secondly, the common necessity. I said already this text comes to a focus at the end of these verses where it draws us back to Paul's theme, really his theme of the entire book. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation because in the gospel what's revealed? The righteousness of God. But how is that righteousness attained? Is attained by faith. Look at verse number 30 that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness, they have attained to righteousness, but not a righteousness of their working, but the righteousness which is of faith. And for Israel, they follow the law of righteousness, but they do not attain to it, verse number 31. Why, verse 32? Because they sought it not by faith. I remind you tonight, There's only one way to be saved. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way for a man to be right with God. So I come back to the same question. Does that burden your heart tonight? Do you have a desire in your soul? How can I be right with God? Well, I'm telling you, here is how you can be right with God. It's only by putting your trust in God's provided righteousness, namely His Son, Jesus Christ. I have five statements, five observations, C-A to C-E, A to E there in your bulletin. First of all, to be saved requires righteousness. Verse 30 makes it clear that the Gentiles, they have attained to righteousness. That's the standard. You will not get into heaven unless you're perfect. You will not be accepted in God's sight unless you're righteous in God's sight. 
You have no hope before a holy God unless you have a righteousness. What is that righteousness? Perfect obedience to God's law. No sin, no transgression, nothing to mar your account before God. Nothing but perfect obedience. That's your only way to be saved. Having a perfect righteousness. You must attain to righteousness. To be justified. God, when he justifies the sinner, declares that sinner to be righteous. That's what it is. What is justification? It is God declaring publicly the sinner to be righteous. That's a righteous man. That's a righteous woman. But God can't tell a lie. God cannot look at you and say you're righteous if you're not. Say you're accepted when you're not. If God has justified you, it's a statement of truth. Because you have attained to righteousness. But that righteousness, secondly, cannot be achieved by any sinner. The Jew understood this. They did not find the righteousness because they could not find the righteousness by the works of the law. I guess back to Romans chapter 3. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You can't be accepted as righteous in God's sight because of your own works. You can't be good enough. You can't be righteous enough. You can't deal with your sin. You can't get rid of that. And you can't secure that perfect obedience that you need. Righteousness cannot be achieved by any sinner. But thankfully, in the third place, God has provided a righteousness for sinners. That's the statement in verse number 31. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. Now here it's describing Christ in terms of the rejection of those who will not accept him. But I'm drawing your attention to the truth. I lay in Zion, in Jerusalem. God sent his son to be that righteous one, to be the one who perfectly obeyed the law of God. And he did that not for his own good, but for the good of those he came to represent. Again, Paul is quoting in Again, these verses, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah 28. But he's using language similar to Psalm 118, the cornerstone. And the point is, God lays his provision in Zion. He sends his son to live and die, live a perfect life and die the death for the sinner. He lays in Zion. He provides our righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside ourselves is offered to us in Christ Jesus. We saw it in 2 Corinthians 5. He made Christ, Christ knew no sin. But he made him to sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so to be saved requires righteousness. No sinner can be righteous in their own efforts. But God has provided a righteousness for them. So that fourthly, when presented with God's righteousness, sinners must make a decision. These verses, they highlight decision. They highlight particularly at the end of this chapter the decision to reject the gospel. For the self-righteous Jew, Christ was a stumbling stone. They refused to accept that they required a savior. That's the same problem in the lost soul today. Do you think you're going to heaven? I hope so. Why do you hope so? Because I think I'm good enough. I'm not a bad person. I'm not as bad as that person down the road. 
the self-righteousness, and they stumble over the fact that you're a filthy, rotten sinner and you have no hope without Christ Jesus. That's a stumbling stone. They will not accept a righteousness outside themselves. It, it debases their pride. It puts them in the dust. And they recognize, I, I can't do it myself. I need God's provision. And so they stumble over Christ and reject Christ. But the Gentiles who attain righteousness, they do so by faith. Faith is a decision to take Christ Jesus. It is to see Christ, admire Christ, and say he is a saviour, but more than that, he's my saviour. I'm going to run into him as my refuge. I'm going to take him as my saviour. I'm going to trust him as my Lord and my God. It requires a decision. And fifthly, eternal destinies rest on this decision. You need righteousness. It's offered to you in Christ Jesus. A decision is required. And the outcome of that decision will determine your eternal destiny tonight. The remnant are saved. That's what it says in verse number 27. Isaiah also crieth, though the number be as a sand of the sea, though they know great covenant blessings, yet a remnant shall be saved. And if God had not saved a remnant, what would happen to them, verse number 29? They would be like Sodom and Gomorrah. What does that mean? Unless God had saved that remnant, that remnant would be under the wrath of God and know nothing else but the eternal justice of God. They're under God's wrath. It's a very sobering thing. Verse 28 completes the quotation of Isaiah chapter 10. So verse 27, 28 are quotations of Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. And of that, it says, he will finish the work. Cut it short in righteousness. It describes the speedy, successful judgment of God upon those who were not part of the remnant. If you're not saved tonight, God will come in a hurry and pour his wrath upon your soul forever and forever. And you will join the souls of those in hell for whom it's described the fire and the smoke rises forever and forever. That's the consequence of hearing the gospel and rejecting the gospel. If you're not called and drawn to Christ and trust in him, then the wrath of God will be your portion forever and forever. But for those who believe, verse number 33, shall not be Ashamed. That's a quotation also of Isaiah in the chapter 28. In that portion, it says in the Hebrew, the believer shall not be in haste. Paul is here quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek, they understood the idiom of the Hebrew, shall not be in haste shall not be ashamed. In other words, when the day of judgment comes, those who trust in Christ will not need to run away embarrassed. They will not be in a haste to get out of God's presence. That's an incredible thought. If God marks my iniquities, who can stand? I can stand. And I won't run away from God's presence. I won't be ashamed in God's presence. I won't make haste. 
Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Bold, bold shall I stand. The child of God has the assurance that because of Christ's perfect righteousness, when the day of judgment comes, they shall not be ashamed. That's the hope of the saint. That's a stark presentation of the gospel. Humanity, we're all so different. We're all so diverse. But you're either saved or lost. And when judgment comes, you'll either receive the sentence of your sin or you'll stand in God's presence not ashamed. Not because of your works, but because of Christ, the only Savior of sinners. This is so, so familiar to all of you tonight. But this is your hope and this is your assurance. And may the reminder encourage your heart tonight for the glory of Christ. Amen. Let's again please close in prayer. Eternal God and Father, we worship you afresh tonight. We thank you for inspiring the Apostle Paul to really bring us back to the themes that we saw earlier in this book. The blessed truth that we cannot be righteous through our own efforts, but yet you have provided righteousness for us. Christ is indeed our righteousness. He is the one who fulfills the law on our behalf. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Thank you for the prospect that on Judgment Day we shall stand in your presence. Lord, we know our own sin right now. And so our only hope is to stand in Christ Jesus. He is altogether perfect. He who kept your law without any feelings. And he paid the price for all of our sins. Thank you, Father, again for the gift of your Son. May we rest in all that he's done and delight and have the assurance of those who have been redeemed by Christ's precious blood. Give us help this week. Help us to honor thee and serve thee in our ways. May we live out these truths with joy and confidence and assurance and with a burden for our neighbors who remain in their ignorance and in their idolatry. Deliver them, we pray. Cause them to see the light of the gospel in the person of Christ Jesus. We ask these things again in his name and for his glory. Amen.